0: Part Three of The Eyes Have It by Randall Garrett. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Eyes Have It Part Three. In the small office which Lord Darcy and his staff had been assigned while conducting the investigation, Three men watched while a fourth conducted a demonstration on a table in the center of the room. Master Sean O'Loughlin held up an intricately engraved gold button with an arabesque pattern and a diamond set in the center. He looked at the other three. "'Now, my lord, your reverence, and colleague doctor, I call your attention to this button.' Dr. Paley smiled, and Father Bright looked stern. Lord Darcy merely stuffed tobacco imported from the southern New England counties on the Gulf, into a German-made porcelain pipe. He allowed Master Shawn a certain amount of flamboyance. Good sorcerers were hard to come by. "'Will you hold the robe, Dr. Pately? Thank you. Now stand back. That's it. Thank you. Now, I place the button on the table, a good ten feet from the robe.' Then he muttered something under his breath and dusted a bit of powder on the button. He made a few passes over it with his hands, paused, and looked up at Father Bright. "'If you will, reverend sir.' Father Bright solemnly raised his right hand, and, as he made the sign of the cross, said, "'May this demonstration, O God, be in strict accordance with the truth, and may the evil one not in any way deceive us who are witnesses thereto. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen.' "'Amen!' The other three chorused. Master Sean crossed himself, then muttered something under his breath. The button leaped from the table, slammed itself against the robe which Dr. Pateley held before him, and stuck there as though it had been sewed on by an expert. ''Ha!'' said Master Sean. ''As I thought!'' He gave the other three men a broad, beaming smile. ''The two were definitely connected!'' Lord Darcy looked bored. "'Time?' he asked. "'In a moment, my lord,' Master Shawn said apologetically. "'In a moment.' While the other three watched, the sorcerer went through more spells with the button and the robe, although none were quite so spectacular as the first demonstration. Finally Master Shawn said, "'About eleven-thirty last night they were tarn apart, my lord. But I shouldn't like to make it any more definite than to say between eleven and midnight.' THE SPEED WITH WHICH IT RETURNED TO ITS PLACE SHOWS THAT IT WAS RIPPED OFF VERY RAPIDLY, HOWEVER." "'Very good,' said Lord Darcy. "'Now the bullet, if you please.' "'Yes, my lord. This will have to be a bit different." He took more paraphernalia out of his large, symbol-decorated carpet-bag. "'The law of contagion, gently born, sirs, is a tricky thing to work with. If a man doesn't know how to handle it, he can get himself killed.' We had an apprentice of the guild back in Cork, who might have made a good sorcerer in time. He had the talent. Unfortunately, he didn't have the good sense to go with it. According to the law of contagion, any two objects which have ever been in contact with each other have an affinity for each other, which is directly proportional to the product of the degree of relevancy of the contact and the length of time they were in contact, and inversely proportional to the length of time since they have ceased to be in contact. He gave a smiling glance to the priest. That doesn't apply strictly to relics of the saints, reverend sir. There's another factor enters in there, as you know. As he spoke, the sorcerer was carefully clamping the little handgun into the padded vise so that its barrel was parallel to the surface of the table. Anyhow, he went on, This apprentice, all on his own, decided to get rid of the cockroaches in his house. A simple thing, if one knows how to go about it. So he collected dust from various cracks and crannies about the house, dust which contained, of course, the droppings of the pests. The dust, with the appropriate spells and ingredients, he boiled. It worked fine. The roaches all came down with a raging fever and died. Unfortunately, the clumsy lad had poor laboratory technique. He allowed three drops of his own perspiration to fall into the steaming pot over which he was working, and the resulting favor killed him, too. By this time he had put the bullet which Dr. Pately had removed from the Count's body on a small pedestal, so that it was exactly in line with the muzzle of the gun. ''There, now,'' he said softly. Then he repeated the incantation and the powdering that he had used on the button. As the last syllable was formed by his lips, the bullet vanished with a ping. In its vice the little gun vibrated. "'Ah,' said Master Sean, "'no question there, eh? That's the death weapon all right, my lord. Yes. Time's almost exactly the same as that of the removal of the button. Not more than a few seconds later. Forms a picture, don't it, my lord?' His Lordship the Count jerks a button off the girl's gown, she outs the gun, and plugs him." Lord D'Arcy's handsome face scowled. "'Let's not jump to any hasty conclusions, my good Sean. There is no evidence whatever that he was killed by a woman.' "'Would a man be wearing that gown, my lord?' "'Possibly,' said Lord D'Arcy. "'But who says that any one was wearing it when the button was removed?' Oh. Master Sean subsided into silence. Using a small ramrod, he forced the bullet out of the chamber of the little pistol. ''Father Bright,'' said Lord Darcy, ''will the Countess be serving tea this afternoon?'' The priest looked suddenly contrite. ''Good heavens! None of you has eaten yet. I'll see that something is sent up right away, Lord Darcy. In the confusion,'' Lord Darcy held up a hand, ''I beg your pardon, Father." That wasn't what I meant. I'm sure Master Sean and Dr. Paley would appreciate a little something, but I can wait until tea-time. What I was thinking was that perhaps the Countess would ask her guests to tea. Does she know Laird and Lady Duncan well enough to ask for their sympathetic presence on such an afternoon as this?" Father Bright's eyes narrowed a trifle. "'I dare say it could be arranged, Lord Darcy. Will you be there?' Yes but I may be a trifle late. That will hardly matter at an informal tea." The priest glanced at his watch. Four o'clock?' "'I should think that would do it,' said Lord Darcy. Father Bright nodded wordlessly and left the room. Dr. Paley took off his pince-nez and polished the lenses carefully with a silk handkerchief. "'How long will your spell keep the body incorrupt, Master Sean?' he asked. "'As long as it's relevant. As soon as the case is solved, or we have enough data to solve the case, as the case may be, (laughs) he'll start to go. I'm not a saint, you know. It takes powerful motivation to keep a body incorrupt for years and years.' Sir Pierre was eyeing the gown that Pateley had put on the table. The button was still in place, as if held there by magnetism. He didn't touch it. "'Master Shawn, I don't know much about magic,' he said. "'But can't you find out who was wearing this robe just as easily as you found out that the button matched?' Master Sean wagged his head in a firm negative. "'No, sir. Tisn't relevant, sir. The relevancy of the integrated dress as a whole is quite strong. So is that of the seamstress or tailor who made the garment, and that of the waver who made the cloth. But except in certain circumstances, the person who wears or wore the garment has little actual relevancy to the garment itself." "'I'm afraid I don't understand,' said Sir Pierre, looking puzzled. "'Look at it like this, sir. That gown wouldn't be what it is if the waver hadn't made the cloth in that particular way. It wouldn't be what it is if the seamstress hadn't cut it in a particular way and sewed it in a specific manner. You follow, sir? Yes. Well then, The connections between garment and weaver and garment and samestress are strongly relevant. But this dress would still be pretty much what it is if it had stayed in the closet instead of being worn. No relevance, or very little. Now if it were a well-worn garment that would be different, that is, if it had always been worn by the same person. Then you see, sir, the garment as a whole is what it is because of the wearing, and the wearer becomes relevant. He pointed at the little handgun he was holding in his hand. "'Now, you take your gun here, sir. The—' "'It isn't my gun,' Sir Pierre interrupted firmly. "'I was speaking rhetorically, sir,' said Master Shawn with infinite patience. "'This gun, or any other gun in general, if you see what I mean, sir. It's even harder to place the ownership of a gun. Most of the wear on a gun is purely mechanical.' It don't matter who pulls the trigger, you see. The erosion by the gases produced in the chamber and the wear caused by the bullet passing through the barrel will be the same. You see, sir, tisn't relevant to the gun who pulled its trigger or what it's fired at. The bullet's a slightly different matter. To the bullet it is relevant which gun it was fired from and what it hit. All these things simply have to be taken into account, Sir Pierre." "'I see,' said the knight. "'Very interesting, Master Shawn. Then he turned to Lord D'Arcy. "'Is there anything else, your lordship? There's a great deal of county business to be attended to.' Lord D'Arcy waved a hand. "'Not at the moment, Sir Pierre. I understand the pressures of government. Go right ahead.' "'Thank you, your lordship. If anything further should be required, I shall be in my office.' As soon as Sir Pierre had closed the door, Lord D'Arcy held out his hand toward the sorcerer. "'Master Sean, the gun?' Master Sean handed it to him. "'Ever see one like it before?' he asked, turning it over in his hands. "'Not exactly like it, my lord.' "'Come, come, Sean. Don't be so cautious. I'm no sorcerer, but I don't need to know the laws of similarity to be able to recognize an obvious similarity.' Edinburgh said Master Sean flatly. Exactly. Scottish work. The typical Scot gold work. Remarkable beauty. And look at that lock; It has Scots written all over it. And more. Edinburgh, you said. Dr. Pately, having replaced his carefully polished glasses, leaned over and peered at the weapon in Lord Darcy's hand. Couldn't it be Italian, my lord? Or Moorish? In Moorish Spain they do work like that. "'No Moorish gunsmith would put a hunting scene on the butt,' Lord D'Arcy said flatly. "'And the Italians wouldn't have put heather and thistles in the field surrounding the huntsman.' "'But the F.D.M. engraved on the barrel,' said Dr. Pately, "'Indicates the—' "'Ferrari of Milan,' said Lord D'Arcy. "'Exactly. But the barrel is of much newer work than the rest. So are the chambers. This is a fairly old gun.' Fifty years old, I'd say. The lock and the butt are still in excellent condition, indicating that it has been well cared for. But frequent usage, or a single accident, could ruin the barrel and require the owner to get a replacement. It was replaced by Ferrari. I see, said Dr. Pately, somewhat humbled. If we open the lock... Master Sean, hand me your small screwdriver. Thank you. If we open the lock we will find the name of one of the finest gunsmiths of half a century ago, a man whose name has not yet been forgotten. Hamish Graw of Edinburgh. Ah, there, you see?" They did. Having satisfied himself on that point, Lord Darcy closed the lock again. Now, men, we have the gun located. We also know that a guest in this very castle is Laird Duncan of Duncan, the Duncan of Duncan himself. A Scots laird who was, fifteen years ago, His Majesty's Minister Plenipotentiary to the Free Grand Duchy of Milan. That suggests to me that it would be indeed odd if there were not some connection between Laird Duncan and this gun, eh?" "'Come, come, Master Sean,' said Lord Darcy, rather impatiently. "'We haven't all the time in the world.' patience my lord patience said the little sorcerer calmly can't hurry these things you know he was kneeling in front of a large heavy traveling chest in the bedroom of the guest apartment occupied temporarily by laird and lady duncan working on the lock one position of a lock is just as relevant as the other so you can't work with the bolt but the pin tumblers on the cylinder now that's a different matter A lock's built so that the brakes and the tumblers are not related to the surface of the cylinder when the key is out, but there is a relation when the key's in, so by taking advantage of that relevancy... Ah!' The lock clicked open. Lord Darcy raised the lid gently. "'Carefully, my lord,' Master Sean said in a warning voice. "'He's got a spell on the thing. Let me do it.' He made Lord Darcy stand back, and then lifted the lid of the heavy trunk himself. When it was leaning back against the wall, gaping open widely on its hinges, Master Sean took a long look at the trunk and its lid, without touching either of them. There was a second lid on the trunk, a thin one, obviously operated by a simple bolt. Master Sean took his sorcerer's staff, a five-foot heavy rod made of the wood of the quicken-tree or mountain-ash, and touched the inner lid. Nothing happened. He touched the bolt. Nothing. Hmm, Master Sean murmured thoughtfully. He glanced around the room, and his eyes fell on a heavy stone doorstop. That ought to do it. He walked over, picked it up, and carried it back to the chest. Then he put it on the rim of the chest in such a position that if the lid were to fall, it would be stopped by the doorstop. Then he put his hand in as if to lift the inner lid. The heavy outer lid swung forward and down of its own accord, moving with a blurring speed, and slammed viciously against the doorstop. Lord Darcy massaged his right wrist gently, as if he felt where the lid would have hit if he had tried to open the inner lid. Trigger to slam if a human being sticks a hand in there, eh? Are ahead, my lord. Not very effectual if you know what to look for. There are better spells than that for guarding things. "'Now we'll see what his lordship wants to protect so badly that he practices sorcery without a license.' He lifted the lid again, and then opened the inner lid. "'It's safe now, my lord. Look at this!' Lord Darcy had already seen. Both men looked in silence at the collection of paraphernalia on the first tray of the chest. Master Sean's busy fingers carefully opened the tissue-paper packing of one after another of the objects. "'A human skull,' he said bottles of graveyard earth. Hmm. This one is labeled virgin's blood. And this, a hand of glory." It was a mummified human hand, stiff and dry and brown, with the fingers partially curled, as though they were holding an invisible ball three inches or so in diameter. On each of the finger-tips was a short candle-stub. When the hand was placed on its back it would act as a candelabra. That pretty much settles it, eh, Master Shawn, Lord Darcy said, indeed, my Lord, at the very least, we can get him for possession of materials. Black magic is a matter of symbolism and intent. Very well, I want a complete list of the contents of that chest. Be sure to replace everything as it was, and relock the trunk. He tugged thoughtfully at an earlobe, so Laird Duncan has the talent, eh, interesting. "'Aye, but not surprising, my lord,' said Master Sean, without looking up from his work. "'It's in the blood. Some attribute it to the Dadanans, who passed through Scotland before they conquered Ireland three thousand years ago. But, however that may be, the talent runs strong in the sons of Gael. It makes me boil to see it misused.' While Master Shawn talked, Lord Darcy was prowling around the room. Reminding one of a lean tomcat who was certain that there was a mouse concealed somewhere. It'll make Laird Duncan boil if he isn't stopped, Lord Darcy murmured absently. Ay, my lord," said Master Sean. "The mental state necessary to use the talent for black sorcery is such that it invariably destroys the user. But if he knows what he's doing, a lot of other people are hurt before he finally gets his." Lord Darcy opened the jewel-box on the dresser. The usual traveling jewelry, enough, but not a great choice. A man's mind turns in on itself when he's taken up with hatred and thoughts of revenge," Master Sean droned on, or if he's the type who enjoys watching others suffer, or the type who doesn't care but is willing to do anything for gain, then his mind is already warped and the misuse of the talent just makes it worse. Lord D'Arcy found what he was looking for in a drawer, just underneath some neatly folded lingerie. A small holster, beautifully made of Florentine leather, gilded and tooled. He didn't need Master Sean's sorcery to tell him that the little pistol fitted like a hand in a glove. Father Bright felt as though he had been walking a tightrope for hours. Laird and Lady Duncan had been talking in low, controlled voices that betrayed an inner nervousness, but Father Bright realized that he and the Countess had been doing the same thing. The Duncan of Duncan had offered his condolences on the death of the late Count with the proper air of suppressed sorrow, as had Mary, Lady Duncan. The Countess had accepted them solemnly and with gratitude. But Father Bright was well aware that no one in the room, possibly, he thought, no one in the world, regretted the Count's passing. Laird Duncan sat in his wheelchair his sharp Scots features set in a sad smile that showed an intent to be affable even though great sorrow weighed heavily upon him. Father Bright noticed it and realized that his own face had the same sort of expression. No one was fooling any one else, of that the priest was certain, but for any one to admit it would be the most boorish breach of etiquette. But there was a haggardness, a look of increased age about the Laird's countenance that Father Bright did not like. His priestly intuition told him, clearly, that there was a turmoil of emotion in the Scotsman's mind that was—well, evil was the only word for it. Lady Duncan was, for the most part, silent. In the past fifteen minutes, since she and her husband had come to the informal tea, she had spoken scarcely a dozen words. Her face was mask-like, but there was the same look of haggardness about her eyes as there was in her husband's face but the priest's emphatic sense told him that the emotion here was fear, simple and direct. His keen eyes had noticed that she wore a shade too much make-up. She had almost succeeded in covering up the faint bruise on her right cheek, but not completely. My lady the Countess de Vreau was all sadness and unhappiness, but there was neither fear nor evil there. She smiled politely and talked quietly. Father Bright would have been willing to bet that not one of the four of them would remember a word that had been spoken. Father Bright had placed his chair so that he could keep an eye on the open doorway and the long hall that led in from the great keep. He hoped Lord Darcy would hurry. Neither of the guests had been told that the Duke's investigator was here, and Father Bright was just a little apprehensive about the meeting. The Duncans had not even been told that the Count's death had been murder, but he was certain that they knew. Father Bright saw Lord Darcy coming through the door at the far end of the hall. He murmured a polite excuse and rose. The other three accepted his excuses with the same politeness and went on with their talk. Father Bright met Lord Darcy in the hall. "'Did you find what you were looking for, Lord Darcy?' the priest asked in a low tone. "'Yes,' Lord Darcy said." I'm afraid we shall have to arrest Laird Duncan. "'Murder?' "'Perhaps. I'm not yet certain of that. But the charge will be black magic. He has all the paraphernalia in a chest in his room. Master Sean reports that a ritual was enacted in the bedroom last night. Of course that's out of my jurisdiction. You, as a representative of the church, will have to be the arresting officer.' He paused. "'You don't seem surprised, reverence.' "'I'm not,' Father Bright admitted. "'I felt it. "'You and Master Shawn will have to make out a sworn deposition before I can act.' "'I understand. "'Can you do me a favor?' "'If I can.' "'Get my lady the Countess out of the room on some pretext or other. "'Leave me alone with her guests. "'I do not wish to upset my lady any more than absolutely necessary.' "'I think I can do that. "'Shall we go in together?' why not? But don't mention why I'm here. Let them assume I am just another guest. Very well." All three occupants of the room glanced up as Father Bright came in with Lord Darcy. The introductions were made. Lord Darcy humbly begged the pardon of his hostess for his lateness. Father Bright noticed the same sad smile on Lord Darcy's handsome face as the others were wearing. Lord D'Arcy helped himself from the buffet-table and allowed the countess to pour him a large cup of hot tea. He mentioned nothing about the recent death. Instead, he turned the conversation toward the wild beauty of Scotland and the excellence of the grouse-shooting there. Father Bright had not sat down again. Instead, he left the room once more. When he returned, he went directly to the countess and said, in a low but clearly audible voice, "'My lady, Sir Pierre Morlaix has informed me that there are few matters that require your attention immediately. It will require only a few moments.' My lady the Countess did not hesitate, but made her excuses immediately. "'Do finish your tea,' she said. "'I don't think I shall be long.' Lord Darcy knew the priest would not lie, and he wondered what sort of arrangement had been made with Sir Pierre. Not that it mattered, except that Lord Darcy had hoped it would be sufficiently involved for it to keep the Countess busy for at least ten minutes. The conversation, interrupted but momentarily, returned to Grouse. "'I haven't done any shooting since my accident,' said Lord Duncan, "'but I used to enjoy it immensely. I still have friends up every year for the season.' "'What sort of weapon do you prefer for Grouse?' Lord Darcy asked. "'A one-inch bore with a modified choke,' said the Scot. "'I have a pair that I favour. Excellent weapons.' "'Of Scottish make?' "'No, no, English. Your London gunsmiths can't be beat for shotguns. "'Oh, I thought perhaps your Lordship had had all your guns made in Scotland.' As he spoke, he took out the little pistol out of his coat-pocket and put it carefully on the table. There was a sudden silence, then Laird Duncan said in an angry voice, "'What is this? Where did you get that?' Lord Duncan glanced at Lady Duncan, who had turned suddenly pale. "'Perhaps,' he said coolly, "'Lady Duncan can tell us.' She shook her head and gasped. For a moment she had trouble in forming words or finding her voice. Finally, "'No, no, I know nothing, nothing!' But Laird Duncan looked at her oddly. "'You do not deny that is your gun, my lord?' Lord Darcy asked. "'Or your wife's, as the case may be.' "'Where did you get it?' There was a dangerous quality in the Scotsman's voice. He had once been a powerful man, and Lord Darcy could see his shoulder-muscles bunching. "'From the late Count D'Evraud's bedroom.' "'What was it doing there?' There was a snarl in the Scots' voice, but Lord D'Arcy had the feeling that the question was as much directed toward Lady Duncan as it was to himself. "'One of the things it was doing there was shooting Count Devrault through the heart.' Lady Duncan slumped forward in a dead faint, overturning her teacup. Laird Duncan made a grab at the gun, ignoring his wife. Lord D'Arcy's hand snaked out and picked up the weapon before the Scot could touch it. "'No, no, my lord he said mildly, this is evidence in a murder case. We mustn't tamper with the King's evidence. He wasn't prepared for what happened next. Laird Duncan roared something obscene in Scots Gaelic, put his hands on the arms of his wheelchair, and, with a great thrust of his powerful arms and shoulders, shoved himself up and forward toward Lord Darcy, across the table from him. His arm swung up toward Lord D'Arcy's throat as the momentum of his body carried him toward the investigator. He might have made it, but the weakness of his legs betrayed him. His waist struck the edge of the massive oaken table, and most of his forward momentum was lost. He collapsed forward, his hands still grasping toward the surprised Englishman. His chin came down hard on the tabletop. Then he slid back, taking the tablecloth and the china and the silverware with him. He lay unmoving on the floor. His wife did not even stir, except when the tablecloth tugged at her head. Lord Darcy had jumped back, overturning his chair. He stood on his feet, looking at the two unconscious forms. End of Part 3